At every ARBA convention, we're greeted by a banner that reads, For five days, you don't have to explain to anyone why you raise rabbits. Our hobby sometimes raises eyebrows. You show what? But once you step inside, you'll discover a world full of passionate, interesting people all working toward the ultimate goal, best in show. What can I do for you? Well, I'm looking for a white rabbit. You take the red pill. You stay in Wonderland. And I show you how deep the rabbit hole goes. If I were looking for a white rabbit, I'd ask the Mad Hatter. Okay, rabbit, you force me to use force. I imagine that right now you're feeling a bit like Alice, tumbling down the rabbit hole. Hello and welcome to Best in Show, the only podcast dedicated to the rabbit and KV industry. We are here with episode 24. As with every week, I am Bryony Smith, joined by my suave and debonair co-host, Alan Messick of California. Alan, how are things on your side of the country? Mm, debonair, I love it. Uh, things are good out here. Uh, thanks for the intro. As always, Bryony, it's always good to be joined with you. I'm so fortunate to get to do this podcast with you. Um, things are good. We I judged a show actually in Southern California this past weekend in Cardiff, which is uh, a little little seaside town just north of San Diego, which you know and love so much. So if any of our guests have been to the Del Mar Fairgrounds where we hosted three previous conventions. Cardiff is not too far north of there. It's right on the coast. And we do the show in a, in a city park. It's green grass. It's just, it's always a very fun summer show. And if you are in Southern California in the summer, it's one of the few places in this state that isn't super hot. Um, and this year uh, was extra special because we haven't had a rabbit show in Southern California in almost two years. So because that area of the country was hit, uh, you know, one of the first regions hit and continuously hit by RHD. Then COVID happened. RHD was there again. Um, so it's actually one of the few areas in our state now where you can, uh, where you can show. And it was really good to see some faces I hadn't seen in a long time. And everyone was super excited to be there. And, you know, it was a, it, it reflects the show was small, you know, it was really tiny, but it reflects, or I was thinking it reflects a lot on what some of our guests have all said when they quote their favorite rabbit show, which is a small one. And this was small. Like Josh was there. It was really fun to judge next to him, Kevin Stanford and, and Linda Bell, and then Alan Barr and Valerie Jump did the KVs. And, you know, it just offered us a chance to be more intimate in terms of, you know, expressing how we judged, how we evaluated the rabbits, um, you know, taking questions from, breeders afterwards. And and then, you know, like, I'm sure you're going to, you know, think about your experiences judging those small shows where, you know, afterwards you get to kind of confer with the judges that judge the same rabbits, especially if you're like, you're, you know, friends, like, Hey, what'd you pick? And, you know, blah, blah. And, um, so it was, it was fun. You know, we can step back and, and, and we all learn something when that happens. And believe it or not, uh, the same breeder won best in show in all three shows. It was a triple in open. And that was Rachel Mastrangelo. And she did it with three different Holland Lops, which is pretty incredible. That it is. Um, and you're right about those small shows, just the ability to get together, to look at rabbits together, to 
talk with each other, to take your time with the animals and the exhibitors. You know, we all love large shows, the prestige of winning one of those. But these are often the best opportunities for learning and for just kind of rekindling your passion, that hobby. And I think that part of the country could use a little bit of that after all they've been through. No kidding. I was really worried about it down there. We lo- we've lost breeders because they don't have show opportunities and showing is an inspiration and, you know, drive behind, you know, breeding. And it's a really challenging part of the country because it's very expensive to live there. It's not necessarily an ag-based region, especially the closer you move to the coast. Um, so that area already is up against a wall in terms of keeping people interested in, in our industry. Uh, so good to see some of those faces there. Gosh, Linda Bell hadn't shown rabbits in almost two years. Uh, and I've seen her because she does secretary work for our, some of our Northern California shows. And, uh, you know, she shows like five breeds and they looked great. It was so good to see her. Uh, she was just thrilled to be showing her rabbits once again. I can only imagine. I know, you know, for me going almost a year without showing anything, the first show I went to was just as an exhibitor. I didn't even want to judge. Um, I was actually kind of worried about getting pulled in and then a big board fell on my hand and bruised it pretty badly. And I'm like, well, I don't even really mind because that means I can just show my rabbits. Um, but yeah, just, just being able to come together again, it really just rekindles your interest in the hobby and reminds us why we're all here and doing this. No kidding. That's really fun. So, you know, we've got some uh, natural disasters going on. Gosh, I want to, you know, give a shout out to our our Airbnb friends in the Southeast, particularly Louisiana, who have been hit with Hurricane Ida. And I heard, I listened to a lot of uh, news today as I was driving and, uh, you know, the reports that they're going to be without power, some people for a month. I mean, that's just unthinkable. And then they're up against 100 degree heat. So we have a lot of dedicated ARB members in that region of the country. You know, we're thinking about you guys. It's, it's, that's tough. I mean, we've been there with you and I have both faced sort of natural disasters and, and what it can do to, to your program and, and, and stall you and with fires out here, you've had fire. Um, so, you know, our, our thoughts are with you guys. Uh, you're a big part of what we do. We love judging in Louisiana and uh, we hope that your power restores and life resumes a lot quicker than it's you know, expected to. Yes. And know that the rabbit and KB community is here for you guys. Um, I think that's probably the biggest lesson you learn when disaster strikes is just how many people care and how many people are willing to help you get going again when you're ready. Absolutely. Um, I've got a quote to read from a listener, a good friend of mine as well. That's Kate Smith. She's ARBA judge number 1000. She says, uh, looking forward to using Dr. Hayhouse podcast on healthcare in my FFA classroom to prepare my students for the upcoming county fair and showmanship, teaching students about not just the name of the disease, but more importantly, how to treat it. So again, that comes from Kate Smith. And, you know, you did that interview, Bryony, with Dr. Hayhow. And I remember I've listened to it a couple of times now. We've heard several of our, our audience members say like how valuable his podcast was, you know, diving into some of those diseases that we hear about, we know the name of, but when it comes to treatment, you know, how the heck do you take care of it? Yeah, uh, you know, in the rabbit world, I think we all know that not a lot of people have access to a vet with rabbit experience. Um, I was actually very fortunate to. My vet knows rabbits very well. So I've kind of become a resource in my area for this because people know that, you know, I've had 30 some years of experience with a vet who enjoys treating rabbits and actually would get kind of irked with me if I would not bring something in for him to take a look at. Um, but yeah, it's good to to have some valuable, educated information. We get, you know, we do the best we can sometimes with word of mouth, with, you know, kind of 
anecdotal evidence, but it's good to have that definitive information. It's good to have that there whenever anyone needs to access it as well. Absolutely. And that's a reminder to our guests that that podcast with Dr. Hayhow dedicated to healthcare, as well as, uh, you know, more personal reflection on his life and every other podcast that we have recorded so far, it's archived. And you can find links to all of those previous episodes on the Rabbitry Facebook page. So if you look up The Rabbitry on Facebook, if you're not already following it, please do so. And there will be links to uh, previous and current episodes. And if you follow it, you'll get notifications on when we update it with future episodes, which we uh, plan to have loads and loads of. So again, that's The Rabbitry on Facebook. And um, if you haven't heard Dr. Hayhouse or others, you know, click on that. There's a lot of driving time coming up for us that all of us that are headed to Louisville in not too long of a time. Uh, lots of time to listen to podcasts and get caught up to date and then also to learn a few things as well. Um, and those comments, by the way, mean a lot to us, both Brian and I and, and the team behind us, uh, whether you're listening on uh, you know, this podcast platform with Apple, Spotify, Audible, Google Play, you can drop your comments, your five stars and subscriptions. It's free. Podcasts are totally free and it's a wealth of information and a bit of storytelling too. So make sure that uh, you give us those comments and and do like us. And if you feel free, you can also uh, send us an email, our email address that Brian and I both check. It's podcastbestinshow at gmail.com. You can send us your comments, maybe suggestions and uh, a little shout out to us and maybe something that we can take on later on. So we'd love to hear from our guests and we have loads of them around the country and around the world. So thank you everyone for your positive uh, feedback as we continue on this journey with our podcast. Yes, it does mean a lot. And we like to hear your ideas about topics that would interest you and, you know, your feedback about some of our past topics. And and believe me, we do use that when we're planning episodes coming up. You got it. All right, Brian, I think it's time to dive a little bit back in time. And uh, what year have you chosen for us uh, for this podcast, episode 24? I chose 2011. I actually um, found a domestic rabbits from September, October of that year where our guest Johnny had written an article about preparing for the royalty contest. We actually co-authored this article. Um, I thought about it. I remembered, oh, we wrote an article at some point. Um, so beginning with the president's report, Mike Avising was the president at the time. This kind of made me laugh. He starts it out with, one of the things I promised myself when I became president was that I wouldn't write about the weather in my bi-monthly articles. However, I'm going to make an exception this month, as I know many of our members have lost stock in the unrelenting heat this past summer. Um, I don't know about California, but the summer of 2011 was hands down, I mean, in, in feeling it and in the record, the worst summer I have lived through. It was awful. We had week after week of over 100 degree ambient temperatures. We are humid in Kansas, but once we get to about 105, the humidity burns off, but it's not really much better. Um, it was terrible. I remember about that summer bringing bucks in every day to sit, you know, in a carrier on top of the washer just so I might have some shot at fall litters. I remember bumping my lunch breaks to two to three in the afternoon so I could go out and water rabbits and put out ice bottles in the worst of the summer um, and just, you know, sweating buckets and being really nasty going back to work. Um, and also the air conditioner in my car went out during that time, during a week when I was judging a whole bunch of county fairs and couldn't no. fix it. It was awful. I actually bought a pair of shorts that year. <laughs> oh, wow. I hope there are pictures somewhere. It was somewhere. that bad. <laughs> Man. 
Yeah, that was a tough summer. I, I now know why you call 2011 the worst summer ever. Yeah, it was awful. Um, I remember judging one county fair and it was still 105 at seven o'clock when we started judging. Um, yes. A lot of these, we would volunteer to come an hour early, you know, at seven in the morning. So it was not so horrible. Um, we'd just say, yeah, you know, if they give the judge a chance, we'd tell them just dismiss the rabbits when they're done. Just take them home. It's it's too hot for them to be here. It was it was really awful. So I pe- see people complaining now and I'm like, uh, I know you lived through that. This is nothing. Oh, 100 degrees. Yeah, it's hot, but it's not 110. I think the record temperature we hit that year was 114 and it was awful. That's awful for me. And I live in a furnace, so I can only imagine what it's like for, for you guys in Kansas. And people ask, well, doesn't the wind help? Next time you're hot, fan yourself with a hairdryer and tell me how well that works out for you. It's exactly like standing in front of a hairdryer. Exactly. Yes. Yeah. So I remember um, President Avising talked a little bit about this. And I remember everyone was really concerned about having anything in coat for convention that year, which was going to be in Indianapolis. And I know that I felt like I didn't really have anything competitive. I took a blue senior buck. I sort of liked, I brushed a whole bunch of hair out of him and he ended up winning the class because nothing else had any better coat. Um, Yeah, that was a tough year. That was, you know, a year when a lot of us learned about um, raising rabbits in extreme heat. And I know that this year too, and last, some of our members have faced some really unseasonable heat and, you know, at least some of us that, you know, lived through that had some of those experiences to fall back on to be able to give them some advice to help them through that. Um, another topic of discussion in this issue was that um, Executive Director Stewart was re- working remotely from Pennsylvania at this time, um, which kind of in retrospect sounds like a funny thing to kind of bicker about after we've been through COVID and everyone works remotely now. Um, but looking back, it's really interesting that we were able to do this effectively, you know, 10 years ago. And that says a lot about um, the ARBA. It says a lot about um, Executive Director Stewart's abilities to, you know, kind of use technology to our best interest and in moving us forward. So that I thought was interesting in retrospect. Well, I think that uh, I think that the our rabbit and KV community are oftentimes uh, kind of charged with being behind the times. But what Eric was doing back then as executive director, as you just said, it was kind of avant-garde and Hey, you know what? Uh, the rabbit community was doing that before anyone else was. So a nod to that. Yeah. And, and the little poll quote in this article says, since executive director Stewart has been in the position, we've reduced our turnaround time on sanctions, registrations, and grand champion certificates all with one less permanent office employee than we used to have. So clearly this worked. Hats off. Um, Flipping through, I noticed in Director Jay Horizon's District 9 report, he talked about um, the pull quote here is an important detail to keep in mind is that this is the first year that the Airbnb convention will be starting on a Saturday rather than a Sunday and will last until Wednesday rather than Thursday. I don't know about you, but especially for me doing royalty all of those years, I got so stuck on that. Judging begins on Monday opening ceremonies on Sunday, we leave on Thursday scheduled that I still kind of have to translate that in my mind when someone asks, what day is this? I think, well, that was on the old Monday. So now that would be Sunday. <laughs> I still do the same thing. And I didn't realize it dated all the way back to 2011 because I still go, uh, hold on a second. Um, oh yeah, we end on Wednesdays now, even though half of my conventions were spent ending on Thursdays. 
Yeah. <laughs> I do remember the Portland Convention in 98 and on Wednesday, and it, like we thought it was an anomaly. Um, but I understand why this has become a thing, because these venues that we rent, often they want to be able to turn around and have that venue ready to go for another event to rent it out the next weekend. So if we all take our rabbits out on Wednesday, that gives, you know, the cleanup crews that day and Thursday to get that venue ready and turned around. And if you've ever been part of a, a convention crew that had to tear down, you know, it's it, it doesn't take place in like an hour. It's a massive undertaking just to tear it down. Funny story from one of the Wichita conventions. Um, apparently, there was a wedding going on at that venue, which I, I mean, I can't even imagine holding a wedding in a convention center venue, just renting out the whole thing. I don't, don't ask me, but I guess the bride and her family came in as we were cleaning up, saw a 20 foot mountain of shavings and rabbit poop. And there was much drama. Um, maybe she fainted. <laughs> 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 I think it was more of a Bradzilla moment. I wasn't <laughs> there. I kind of regret that now. Oh, my God. <laughs> we had several new judges listed in this edition. Um, Rabbit judges Derek Poole of New York, Teresa Schwant of Wisconsin, Peter Velchek of New Jersey, and Rosa Bryant, formerly of Nebraska, now of Indiana. They all received their Rabbit judges license. Um, new KV judges at the time were John Backman of New York and Aaron McGrath of Ohio. New registrars, there were several of those as well. On the rabbit list was Penny Jesuit. James Goodrich got his rabbit registrar's license. Melinda Schachter of Oregon. Joseph Watson of New York. Kimberly Fenaro of Connecticut. Chelsea Tucker of Kansas, one of our guests. Brian Shirk of Michigan. Um, several of them have gone on to get their judges' licenses. And KV Registrar's licenses were awarded to Hannah Mowry, Tara McParland, and Becky Milk. So it was a busy time for licensing new registrars and judges in the ARBA. That was a lot of registrars and judges. I, I had no idea that 2011 was that much of a boom. Yeah, it was. But back in this time, and not so much in this edition, but some prior in this year, we were still holding the Judges Academy. And actually, I found a little quote from you where you had attended a Judges Academy, I believe in Fresno. And so there was a push at that time and, you know, kind of around that time of the year, because they tended to be held in the summer to get people in and have a couple of intensive days of training, and then they would test and go out and work for their licenses. So I don't know how many of these new judges had attended the academy, but that was a really innovative and, you know, interesting and intensive sort of workshop for prospective judges. Yeah, such a great conference. I, I hope it comes back one day because I learned a ton going there myself. And I know a lot of other people did too. It's so much more intimate than, you know, being at a judge's conference or being at a rush at a convention and going to a judge's conference. You actually get like two full days with, you know, the, the brightest and, and most thoughtful minds and experienced minds in our industry. Yeah, yeah, definitely a, a valuable educational experience. And again, something I too hope can come back in some way, shape or form. So what was going on in the world in 2011 while well, the rest of us were sweating and worrying about molting rabbits? Well, I picked five world events from 2011, and, and they're big ones. Uh, in March of 2011, a series of mass, massive earthquakes hit uh, northeast Japan, and uh, that one of those, in fact, unleashed the 10-meter tsunami, which, of course, was catastrophic to the northeast uh, part of Japan. In April of 2011, Prince William married Catherine Middleton at Westminster Abbey. 
in May of 2011, I remember this, and I'm sure you will too, where you were, uh, U.S. forces killed uh, Al-Qaeda leader Osama bin Laden in a raid at a house in Pakistan. And in 2011, Apple co-founder Steve Jobs uh, died at the young age of 56. Um, top songs in 2011, any guesses, at least on maybe artists? Um, were we to Lady Gaga yet? Eh, I think, mm, I don't know. I think she was around, but I think she took a, like a hiatus. So okay. no. Okay. So Lady Gaga, no. Okay. Um, oh gosh. I'm, I'm not sure then. Number one, Adele with Rolling in the Deep. Oh yes. Right? Katy Perry. Number, good. Okay, good. She was actually number three. Great. Yeah, I got you on, the, on that track. Number two was LMFAO with uh, Party Rock Anthem. Three, as you just said, Katy Perry with Firework. She actually also had number four. You were good. Uh, and she did. A, she collaborated with Kanye West with E.T. Still a great song. And uh, number five, uh, Billboard Top 5 Songs of 2011 went to Pitbull with Give Me Everything. All right, everyone. We are back with episode 24 of Best in Show. And we are, again, joined by Johnny Hausner from Pennsylvania. He is our ARBA District 9 director. He's been active in this ARBA and rabbit and KV industry for many, many years. And he's going to talk about and uh, elaborate on some of the things he talked about last week with the ARBA registration system and the brand new program that he was behind called the Master Breeder Program. So Johnny, welcome back. And uh, why don't you just dive right in and tell us all about the Master Breeder Program and how it relates to all that historical information and incentive for registration that you outlined, outlined last week with us. Okay, great. Yeah, thanks, Alan, uh, for having me back. I um, helped write the the Master Breeder Program, um, which actually just launched, um, really, at the, the beginning of 2021. It was supposed to start uh, in 2020, but, you know, COVID really delayed it. Um, but what the Master Exhibitor does is it, it looks at the amount of grand champions that you have accumulated over your career. And there are different levels and different ranks. There's a master exhibitor and a master breeder. And for a master exhibitor, um, the animals can be bred by someone else and be shown by you. And you granted that rabbit that would count towards your master exhibitor because, you know, we could, let's face it, not everyone is a breeder. Maybe not everyone has the space to, to breed large amounts of rabbits, but they enjoy, you know, purchasing um, good stock and showing that stock and they should be rewarded for their hard work as well because it takes um, just as much work to condition and to grow and to groom um, and to show a rabbit as it does sometimes to, to breed one and put one together. So um, the first level is master exhibitor and it talks about how when an ARBA member over any period of years, accumulates 50 or more grand champion certificates. And you're probably saying, what, 50? And 50, because this is meant to be an accomplishment. This is not meant to be easy. This is meant to really be a feather in your cap to say you accomplished something great over your tenure as uh, a rabbit exhibitor or, or a KB exhibitor. Um, you know, I talk about rabbits, but KV as well. It, it applies the exact same way. Um, the Grand Master Exhibitor is a hundred or more Grand Champions, and um, similar. If you're an exhibitor, um, 
you have to be the one who showed the rabbit or granted the rabbit, but you don't necessarily have to be the breeder. The breeder is where you have to be listed as the original breeder on the registration certificate. And it, um, you can have different co-breeders over the years. So say I partnered up with Alan a couple years with my mini Rex and I listed him as a co-breeder or, um, you know, a couple years later, uh, I show with someone else and list them as a co-breeder. Um, you can obtain the master breeder, um, certificate as long as you were listed as the original breeder on the, on the certificates. Um, and you need 50 grand champions to do that. Um, over a period of five or more years. And, and to me, that's key, um, is that, that five-year period. And it would be hard to grant more than 50 rabbits, if I'm being honest, in, in less than five years. But um, this is for a serious breeder. This isn't for someone who's going to jump in uh, one year, show really hard. It, it, you know, they become this expert and then they're gone two or three years later and never to be heard from again. Like I wanted this to be something prestigious, something that, um, like I said, is meaningful. And the highest, highest level um, that I think five people so far have accomplished is the Supreme Master Breeder. And what that means is you have already become a Master Breeder, so you have the 50 Grand Champions to your name, but you also have one at your respected breed um a national or ARBA convention. And I should I should mention that these are breed specific. So for me, I'm working towards my master breeder in mini Rex. And and that's that's what I'm working towards. So Supreme Master Breeder, you need to have five best of breed or best opposite of breed wins at a national show or an ARBA convention. And and that is truly the ultimate test. And yeah. That's a lot. And I, I love the way that that's, well, I like the way that it's, that it's outlined. I thought it was going to be a little more difficult when I first uh, looked at it to, to kind of figure out. Um, but now that you've explained the difference between the master exhibitor and the master breeder, I totally get it. So I have a couple questions for you um, regarding those. If you, can you achieve master exhibitor and master breeder simultaneously? Because essentially you're doing the same thing, except in the breeder status, they are rabbits that you've bred, correct? That's correct. And, and I suppose you could obtain both of them at the same time. If you, if you were the original breeder and you know, then you would have shown all those rabbits. Yes, you would have obtained those simultaneously. But also looking at the tier, I mean, you've got master exhibitor as like, you know, the, the, f- the first tier, right? And then it goes into master exhibitors. Uh, yeah, grandmaster exhibitors. Right. So, so I'll, give you, I'll just give you my personal um, story. So I've been breeding mini Rex for several years, and I have um, something like 40 mini Rex granted under my name. But I also have, I think, five rabbits that I've bought along the way. And so for me, I will probably, and I imagine most people will do this as well, they'll probably achieve the master exhibitor um ranking before the master breeder ranking i'm not someone that goes out and buys a lot of rabbits i don't like to even show rabbits necessarily that i've bought but obviously i have uh, at least i think five times now and so i won't um i won't earn them simultaneously probably but i'll earn them very close to each other if that makes sense yeah it's, uh, it makes uh, total sense and in reality someone like you might actually pull off the breeder status before exhibitor right because they would be bred by you or am I? Um, no, because the master exhibitor, I don't have to have 
rabbits that were bred by someone else. Right, but I'm saying in your situation where you maybe you only bought five rabbits over, you know, the period oh, of your sure. marriage. Absolutely, tenure, yeah. Absolutely. You could you could hit master breeder before or ever ever obtaining master exhibitor because they're all yours. So it's a higher tier and that you, uh, it is a higher in my mind being a master breeder is truly um a higher tier than being a master exhibitor because it's showing that you have you know put the animals together, bred, selected, called from the very get-go. And we all want to be breeders, right? Absolutely. I mean, it's it's an appreciation for strategy, for someone really working hard at their game and pulling off some of these big these big feats and fifty or hundred grand champions. Like, wow, that's you said it's a lot, and it's going to be five years. And I, I also like what you said about you know it's going to take that long, and that's that's re, that's a minimum. You've got to be you've got to have document which proves you've been doing this for at least five years, and, and proving that is in those uh, grand champions and registrations, right? Absolutely. That proves your timeline. Um, when you authored this, did you look at any other uh, species that are that are doing sort of a master breeder program to kind of give you that idea? Because I think that this program is brilliant. It's long overdue. Um, so where did what you know? Where did this? Where was the brainchild? This is very. So I I cannot take credit for all of this because it's very similar to what the poultry has. Um, and I also show chickens. I'm really close with uh, Wade Burkhalter, and we sat and talked about this for a while. And I, I love what the poultry does. They have a master exhibitor and a master breeder program. Um, they frame it where it's actually by variety. So you don't become a master breeder of a breed. You actually become a master breeder of a color. So I would be black mini racks, for instance. So this is a little more broad. When, when it was when I took the initial draft to the directors, I had it by variety, um, and they thought that was a little too challenging to start off with. Um, maybe something we would go to down the road, but they they did think uh, by breed, and I do agree. You know, fifty grand champions in a breed—that's that's an accomplishment. And so I went back to my hotel room that night and kind of typed it up to include breeds and not varieties of rabbits and cavies, and and it passed. And I mean, I don't show chickens, or I did a long time ago, and it was an epic fail. So I really can't speak for their program. But um, maybe could you talk about maybe the cultural differences between poultry breeders and rabbit breeders? I mean, when we think about rabbit breeders, we we do think about breeds. In poultry, are breeders so specific in their goals and their breeding programs that they are maybe only breeding one or two varieties over their entire lifetime? Um, some, some do. And, and I think there's a lot of similarities between rabbits and poultry in, in the way that, um, breeders approach their animals is that, and, and I said this, um, I believe last week on the podcast is that I always, um, suggest breeders have a focus, whether that's shaded dwarfs, whether that's self mini racks, is that find something compatible because, and you know, as a judge, um, and even as, as an exhibitor, people who have multiple breeds um, running all over the showroom on multiple tables at one time, you're not listening to the judge's feedback. You're not getting that constructive criticism that you need to improve your herd. You're basically spending your day running from table to table. I advocate for people to really have a focus, maybe one or two breeds, maybe one or two colors or colors that are compatible because then you can pour your efforts into that and become a master of, um, of that breed or of that color. 
Yeah, I, we've talked about that on, on the podcast with um, other guests like you that that talk about focus. And if you if you've got so much going on at, at a judging table, you've got the same so much going on at your and in, in your barn too. And it's as you described, you're kind of back and forth, back and forth. It's the same in your barn, and and you kind of lose focus and. T- probably takes you a lot longer to achieve those goals when if you just focused on you know one or two things you're going to pull it off a lot faster yeah. and 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 better so that that's very interesting to to hear how their program is done in poultry and and how it um you know inspired you to to pick this up and you first authored this in 2019 correct um that's correct at the Reno convention was that 19 yeah that was in 2019 yeah, so it at the Reno convention at the board meeting, um, I was new to the board. My first board meeting, I come in with all these ideas and I say, look, I want to do this. Um, how can we make this work? And luckily we had a pretty progressive board. We had a pretty lengthy discussion, um, and good feedback. I think for the most part, it was well received and it was voted on there, uh, to start, I believe then, uh, the next year, uh, you know, and then obviously COVID happened. And, and I do want to say, I, the Supreme, I guess looking at the, the differences between the two, that Supreme Master Breeder, that was completely, I believe, my own invention. I don't think the poultry has anything where you have to win at a national show. But to me, some of our best best breeders, and I'm sure you can list so many of them, uh, don't take part in the registration system. Or I've heard these amazing breeders say, ah, the legs, I just throw them away. And it like breaks my heart. I'm thinking, why? It's your work. It's you know, it's, you're putting so much energy into making your herd great. Why would you not want to have a, a registered herd that have pedigrees full of grand champions? You know, it's it's six dollars to register your rabbit. You can't go to McDonald's and buy a value meal for six dollars. <laughs> Valid <laughs> point. So, yes. and, and if you look at the history, we jump back to when it started. Thinking of in- inflation, it would be twenty seven dollars to register your rabbit today um, if it followed the same trend as when it started. And I, I think it's an underappreciated system, but one that I'm really pushing for people to take part in. Well, and talk about the cost. If you're a registrar, it's half price. It's only $3 for you to, because you can register yeah. your own rabbits. So it's even cheaper if you're a registrar. So another incentive to get your registrar's license, right? Absolutely, yeah. And, and it's been that way since the very beginning. 50 cents was kept by the registrar and 50 cents went to the the airba and now it's the get-go and now it's three bucks to the airba and the registrar keeps three or if you're, if you're registering your own rabbits well you, you get to pocket that all it's 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 pretty cool um and very easy to do and it's getting a registrar's license you know it's, it's it's not impossible and at one point we all get to that point where it's time to get a, a license so um and you know you outlined last week all those incentives that were behind creating the arba registration system from preserving healthy rabbits and promoting healthy rabbits in a time where you know, people were buying rabbit sight unseen. They were being shipped in on, on trains, or maybe they were, you know, coming over on ships from Europe. So um, all those same incentives lead into this program that you've created and, and advocated for. Again, there's more incentive than ever now to register those rabbits. So for those breeders that have not registered rabbits in years yet are at the top of their game year after year, it's not too late to start registering and, and, and saving those legs and making those grand champions and, and stop making Johnny Hausner, um, you know, <laughs> cry over that those loss of that loss of uh, accomplishments and it does mean something i mean i would have shrugged before this program i used yeah i used to shrug my shoulders like why, why keep them why register but this um this is an incentive for registering rabbits again and grand champion yeah. and, and keeping so those let rabbits. me read you i do want to read something so i found this um 
little clip from James Blythe, who was the the ARBA secretary for many, many years. So think about Eric Storr, a Glenn Carr um, of their time. And he writes, um, some registrars are just using their register license as a stepping stone towards their judge's license. Some become judges that never register a rabbit. The registrar and judge go hand in hand. They truly are the representatives of the American Rabbit Breeders Association and the ones who should give our members real service. Registering and judging rabbits is no picnic. It is work if one wants to do justice to the American Rabbit Breeders Association and its members. While many look for the glory that comes with these positions, it never will come to those who do not do their job well. And and how many people do you know who become registrars just to become judges? Mm, a lot. <laughs> I feel a like lot. A, an old funny dud agreeing to this, but you're totally right because I, I do say and, this. Or they become a judge, and I'm, I'm guilty of this too. You know, I, I don't look down at all on registrars. It is such an important work to our association, but I often don't want to bring my tattoo kit to a show. You know, yeah. I don't want to maybe fork out the extra $30 for a registration blank. But I've constantly had people coming up to me and being like, oh, can you register this rabbit? A register didn't show up at the show or whatever. And I'm like, ah, yeah, you know, I didn't bring my tattoo kit. And it, that's just pure laziness on my part because I'm already there. I'm qualified, you know, I, I am a registrar, it says so on my license, I should be taking pride in it and doing the work of the ARVA that I I signed up to do. Yeah, totally right. You, you got it, nailed it. Um, when, let's go back to like the, the, this, the, the program, um, I was calling it the Master Breeder Program, and I'm wrong to call it that because the cumulative name for this is ARBA Master's Program. So, you know, Master Breeder is the higher tier, the higher level that, that you can achieve, but really Airbnb master's program is what you, uh, what you titled this, uh, when you, when you authored it back in 2019, correct? Well, that's right. And like I said before, because people exhibited rabbits that were bought and they shouldn't be discounted just because they bought a rabbit, maybe at eight weeks old and they spent their entire, you know, the, the next six months or whatever conditioning, um, that rabbit, getting it to a show, like there shouldn't be, something taken away from that person because they, you know, they want to show a bot rabbit. Right. Bot rabbits are kind of what keep us as breeders in, in the business. Right. Right. And if you ask anyone, their advice to, to new people is buy from the best. So we've all bought rabbits. We've all been there. We, even now in our veteran years, we still buy those pieces that, that are going to hopefully elevate us to the next level in our, in our, in our program. Friends. Yeah. You know, that's yeah. some of my favorite things from when I was a kid is going to a, a Rex picnic and just trading stock with, with other Rex breeders, um, we'd hold little auctions, fundraisers, and you know, rabbits went for ten, fifteen dollars, and uh, you know, Skip Becker might put in his ambers, <laughs> and um, you know, and, and we just traded stock, uh, and and it was fun. And I, I do think rabbits shows have gotten away a little bit um, from that. Uh, the idea of just you know, being friends with people, helping people out, trade stock, breed a buck for someone. In these early publications, I'm reading. Um, Again, for the why did they create the registration system? If I want to go to Alan's house and breed my rabbit to champion King Tut, you know, whatever that rabbit's name might be, um, I, I can then just register the rabbit. He doesn't have to send me a pedigree. He can like, oh, yeah, it's registered number of this. And that's all you really need. Mm -hmm. You're so right. Um when it comes to, you know, we talk about focus and everything, but it's true that a lot of people, including myself, we raise multiple breeds. Um, and you did mention this early on, but maybe you could highlight that 
this master, whether it's exhibitor or master breeder, those are breed specific, correct? So it's not a cumulative, I'm an ARBA master breeder, and you can lump all of the breeds you raise into into this, correct? Maybe you want to so, tell us sure. a little more about, about that, because I think point. that's a common misconception. And um, the master exhibitor is 50 or more grand champions in any one breed. Um, grand master exhibitor, 100 or more grand champions in any one breed. So it's breed specific. Um, I have grand champions from when I showed my Rex, you know, 10, 15 years ago. Uh, I, I will never achieve 50, unfortunately, but I can't lump those grand champion certificates from my Rex and with my mini Rex. You become a, a master breeder of a breed. And partly, um, I think part of that is due to fads you know people get in and out of breeds all the time even though they might have their their foundation stock so i breed rex and mini rex but over the years i've had californians i've had jersey woolies um, i've had different breeds you know flutter my barn um but um those but you have that that main hub yeah those that, that one I, I would consider myself a breeder of mini rex at the moment because i've spent the most years with them that's what i show the most I, it wouldn't be fair for me to lump in californians um on a master breeder certificate because i had them five or six years when i was in youth and showed them at my county fair <laughs> excellent point <laughs> but essentially if breeders were breeding other rabbits or once they achieve you know uh master breeder or master exhibitor in in one breed they could either simultaneously work towards their other breed or go back later on or even change breeds Absolutely. at one point. I mean, we, we all, we all do that eventually. We, okay, I'm done with mini I've done all I can do. So I'm going to raise uh giant chinchillas now. So um, show rabbits right? and be a good example too. There you go. Um, hey, good one. I was going to ask you about that. Your Peruvian uh, cavies and your mini satins, you, you can get both those certificates at the same time or um, late years later, but yes, you can become a master breeder for, or exhibitor for many breeds. We have 50. Right. And, and then, yeah, and then 13 breeds of KV. So let's talk about the KVs uh, briefly. I mean, we do uh, on this podcast use rabbits collectively, but KVs are a big part of what we do in the ARBA. And um, I, I imagine that this program is outlined the same for both species, correct? Absolutely. Yep. It's the same program for both species. Very cool. Um, and what about kids, say, that are transitioning from uh, youth to open? Uh, registrations and grand champions that were earned or, you know, prior to becoming open, do those, do those roll in? Do those, or do those have a time limit for, for, uh, for a breeder's age? Uh, No time limit. No. So if you're the breeder or the exhibitor, you have it for life. It's not, it doesn't change. So if you showed the rabbit as a youth and then you switch to open, uh, you know, you aged out of youth, those, those absolutely still count. Those, that's awesome. And then kids that show, I mean, let's face it, if you're, if you're raising a, a rare breed, oftentimes, whether you know, there's a youth show or not in conjunction with the open show that you're attending, a lot of kids opt to show an open because that's where the competition is. But those legs that they earn still count towards their their master status. Sure, yeah. Correct? That's right. Awesome. Just like we're going to send in a grand champion certificate, as long as your name is on um, the rabbit's uh, you know, original breeder uh, spot or owner, I guess, then, then, uh, it counts. And I also, I should say that, you know, if you earned a grand champion prior to this program being started, uh, just a couple years ago, they all factor in. So you're not starting from scratch. That's a great point. I think that that's uh, a big 
like people's eyes kind of bug out like, oh gosh, I got to start all over again. I've been doing this for 40 years, but you don't. No, absolutely not. You do not. And if you think you qualify or uh, if you're just curious about how many registrations or I'm sorry, grand champions you have, um, it's a very simple process. I actually shadowed um, Kevin, who is in charge of our registration department at the office. I shadowed him um, this week. I spent a whole morning with him and he just wants an email from you. That's all he wants to say, I, you know, I, I would like to inquire about my status as a master exhibitor. And this is my ARBA number. And that's all you have to do. It's Kevin at ARBA.net. Um, you know, if you're someone and you know you have five or six grand champions, I think we need to be respectful of his time to not <laughs> bug him, right? But if you're someone like Alan Messick, who's been in this for so long, you're like, ah, oh, you know, I, I feel like I'm probably in the 40s, probably in the 40s, somewhere getting close to 50, send Kevin at ARBA.net an email and say, you know, my name's Alan Messick. Um, this is my ARBA number. I'm inquiring about the Master Breeder program. And he has a nice spreadsheet. Um, so, um, And it's that, that, and that, that automated these days. That it's, 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 that, instantaneous. it's instantaneous, yes. Yeah. And by the way, I, I'm nowhere close because, like I said, I didn't register anything for well, a minute, like 20 years. But what you just outlined, I'm, that's, I'm just like jazz. I can't wait to, to get home and start collecting legs again and, and register rabbits again. Um, so good. Nice. No, yeah, I, yeah, give someone a spark. Like, and, and this is another example. I talked about Eric because I just spent a, a day with him. But he was um, – a Minirex breeder for many years, you know, Eric Stort. Um, and he's only a few rabbits from becoming uh, a master breeder for Minirex, but he, but he hasn't had Minirex in years. He's actually motivated. Uh, and I'm not going to hold him to this, but he said, <laughs> I would, he said, or I'm thinking about, you know, getting a few Minirex or, you know, putting them on the table, going back to my, my roots because, um, I'm so close, and I want I want to achieve that level. I want my name to be in in the members um, the members handbook for decades to come, so people remember me as a mini Rex breeder. Because what do you think of Eric Stort as now? Angoras, an Angora breeder, right? Yeah. But people who got in rabbits in the last you know five years, that might be what they know him as. But I remember him showing Caster mini Rex for years. And, Heck and yeah, was, nationally competitive. He's winning all the big shows. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. So so maybe it. it give someone that incentive to like you know what, let me stick with this another year let me let me get a few more or yeah i haven't had mini wrecks let's tinker with them again you know so yeah. i i want it to be a spark i want people to to be excited about this i don't want them to be discouraged people like you who you know who, who have maybe had all these rabbits come and go and and haven't taken the time to register or grant them um obviously if if they were registered and you have the legs then you can you can still send those legs in and the rabbit can become a grand champion. If the rabbit has passed and can't be evaluated, unfortunately, I, I think that one's going to be a lot. <laughs> <laughs> um, but uh, that, that is something to make note of as well. You know, if you registered so-and-so and think, oh, I have three legs laying around here somewhere, you can send those in. Um, That's a great point. Died. I mean, when I was doing my homework for this podcast, I didn't think about that, but I remember writing the registrar's column for DR for a number of years. And I remember one of the, one of the, um, one of the columns I wrote, I'm like, you can't register dead rabbits. I mean, you think it would be like really understood, right? But <laughs> you can't register dead rabbits, but you can grand champion dead rabbits should, if they were registered before they, as you said, passed right. away. <laughs> right. And, yeah. and I, this goes back to my conversation with Kevin at the office uh, a couple of days ago. And I said, what mistake do registrars make? 
everything he said. <laughs> he couldn't narrow, narrow it down to one because people, I, I, and he didn't say this specifically, I should ask him, has anyone ever tried to register a rabbit that, you know, is clearly, you know, 10, 15 years old, and you're like, yeah, I, I doubt that thing <laughs> still meets the standard or is alive. <laughs> Yeah, you know, I've got paperwork on like a, a fuzzy lab that'd be about twenty-two years old right now. Maybe I should, maybe I should test Kevin out. Just kidding, everybody. I'm not going to do that. System. Right, right. <laughs> and, you know, and uh, there's probably cheaters out there, but you know, you have to be honest. Yes, yes, you do. Um, this is such a great program, and it really, it's 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 inspired me, and I hope that it really inspires our listeners uh, as well to take on this new level. This is something brand new that you can now do and achieve. And um, it's, as you said earlier, it's a feather in your cap for all of your hard work. Can I, can I just mention the five people who have already reached that? Oh top yeah. Top yeah. Who are they right so, now? Yeah. And I just had to ask Kevin, I said, has anyone achieved the Supreme master breeder title yet? And, and I know in the back of my head, and I know, you know, too, there are those breeders who have, consistently won their breed national you know you think of like a bob crawford or someone and maybe they passed on and, and will never actually get the certificate even though he's remembered in his breed um these five people have taken the time to register grant participate in the program they they know the security it brings and the value it brings to your herd to your pedigree um and and they've done well at at national so their names will forever be um listed in the ARBA member handbook, and and rightfully so. Chris Zemney with her Holland Lops. I mean, could you think of a, a more legendary Holland Lop breeder? Um, Dennis and Patty Roloff with their Rex. I mean, come on now. Growing up as a Rex uh, kid, uh, you know, there's hardly anyone you could look up to as much as well, uh, I've Dennis. never raised Rex, but that's a name that I associate with that breed over over many many decades. Um, one out by you, Betty Chu with her English oh Angoras, a more legendary breeder who has already achieved this level of uh, success scott williamson with his dutch and suzanne hansen uh with her lion heads wow all all new, still new yes a new a new breed i mean that's uh, so cool uh, yes and, and those people deserve to be remembered and that's one thing i want this program to do is make people be remembered and you mentioned um, these names will be forever publicized in the ARBA handbook. How are they going to be divided over time as more people apply for this? Will they be separated um, in the handbook by breed, or will they simply say Scott Williamson, Master Breeder, comma Dutch, Betty Chu, comma English Angoras? Do you know how that's how that over time will will be um, no, I, kind of organized? I don't know. I, I don't know, and I, I don't know if it's um, been decided yet. That's something I believe for probably Sandra and Eric who who, you know, organized the publication, but they should be in, um, they should be in the 2022 handbook, all of these people who have already achieved. Um, the way it is in poultry is like they have a column for, they'd have a column for master exhibitor, a column for brand master exhibitor, a column for master breeder. And so um, no matter how many breeds, you know, if, if Chris Zemney had Holland Lops and Netherland Dwarves, um, those two breeds would go next to her name under the respective category. Very cool. And those will be documented forever. Um, and by the way, how can breeders track their success? I mean, I, I'm, you mentioned, you know, contacting Kevin at the ARB office to see exactly where you're at with your number of grand champions. But uh, I noticed something I on the, <laughs> sorry. I, I remember I sent you a, a snap of the, my list. Yes, exactly. And, and there is like a, a tracking, right. That you can uh, download on the ARB website. 
So, and all of this stuff, it's a ton of information, I know. It's very simply laid out on the ARV website under member, member resources. You go down to Master Breeder, and on that page, there is uh, tracking forms for each one. And uh, I like um, being organized. I, I like having, you know, I like details. And so I love the idea that I could print that off. Um, I'm sure my Evans, you know, com- pedigree program does it but to me having it i could write it out um i I like the idea of that kevin doesn't need that but if you're someone like me who likes to keep things organized to to write things down you can print that off um right on the airba website there's a nice uh faq um on there as well with details about how to go about it um one issue you know i think one of your questions maybe coming up was an issue that we've run into uh, with the program and the the issue, and I kind of knew this in my head, um, for people who have sold rabbits and the person registered and granted that rabbit but didn't list that person as the original breeder, um, because that works too. If I bought a, um, a rabbit from you and I listed you on the grant, on the registration as the original breeder, the rabbit became a grand champion, that would actually count towards my, um, master breeder status. That's awesome. I didn't even think about that. And the only way you really would be able to find that out, unless you were in contact with the the buyer, would be to contact right. the ARB office for those registrations that are and and that are tagged you, in the name. Absolutely. Um, I would encourage you, if you sell rabbits and um, you want to participate in this program, I would, I would um, ask the buyer nicely, you know, if you register this rabbit down the line, please list me as the original breeder. Um, because it, it will help me someday. And I actually had, I believe, two rabbits in the system that I sold that I didn't even know the people granted. And it was wow. a, such a pleasant surprise to me. Um, I was like, wow, those rabbits did that well, was my first thought. And then also, um, oh, I'm so happy that they took the time to write my name down. And because it is an affidavit, because you are signing a contract where the, the buyer is, if they don't, if they don't write you down as the original breeder, there's nothing that can be done. So don't harass Kevin. Don't email him and say, please, please, please. I, I know I sold this rabbit. Um, what the people are signing, uh, the registrar and the owner, is that they filled out that application to the best of their ability as complete as possible. And if they chose or didn't, negligent, about putting down an original breeder, then, you know, unfortunately, it's a loss for you. Um, but that can be rectified in the future if you just very politely tell people, you know, if you register this rabbit, please put my name down as the original breeder. Well, and that's a, you mentioned keeping good records and how you like to stay organized. And that's another uh, reason as a, as a breeder to keep track of where you sell rabbits, because I think in a lot of these pedigree programs, you can put, you know, the buyer's name. So in essence, when you get to this, when you're on this pathway towards this new status, whether it's master breeder or exhibitor, you can go back to the, um, your, your program, be like, okay, I sold these rabbits over these years. I might reach out to them and say, Hey, by the way, did you ever, you know, do anything with these, you know, or maybe you've got some legs sticking, sitting around, you, might want to write, you know, you know, take care <laughs> well, that, of this. Cause it'll oh, help me out. Did you show that rabbit? Do you have legs? Can we, can I'll even pay the $4? Like let's yeah, say, right? I'm almost there. <laughs> yeah. Like, help a brother out, please. <laughs> I love it. Um, one more question on the Supreme master breeder program, um, which is the highest tier that you can achieve. Uh, it's winning five best or breed, best of breeds or best opposites. Um, for that breed at a convention or national. So how are those, 
how do people prove that they that they won? Say, um, you know, it was a convention a couple of years ago or a national. How do you how do they prove it? Is it by sure. the leg itself, or, or are there other ways to prove it? Like like you can imagine, you have to send those legs in if you grand champion, you know, grand that rabbit. So the leg is probably gone. This this tier. Um, will require a little bit of homework. Um, a lot of, luckily, most breeds, or I'm assuming all breeds today, have um, a publication that they put out with the winners. And it could be as simple as um, going back in the yearbook or the handbook of your breed club and looking, you know, just proving it some way, um, saying, look, here's my name five times, or maybe it's on their website. There, I, I don't think that information is lost because everything is digitized now. So I'm awesome. thinking people who want to participate in this program probably have a record of that in a newsletter, in a leg, in a photo. You know, how many right. photos are laying around? Like you win best oh of breed convention. There's going to be a photo of that. Or, I'm, you know, maybe. Yeah. So I, I, it does take a little homework. Um, and I do believe Eric and Kevin are willing to, to foot some of the time for that. But I'm sure it would be more than appreciated if you have, look, here's me winning this time. Here's, you know, things like that. Yeah, come to the table with as much data as you can to prove Absolutely. your and, prove your win. And we know that there's not going to be hundreds of supreme master breeders. There's going to be a few. Right. This you is know, this I'm, is the elite of the elite. Absolutely. T- to be this high tier, like we're going to know who you are probably. And by the way, when uh, you know, uh, thinking about our rare breeders, um, if you invest to breed at a convention or best opposite or at a national, and you and you raise a rare breed, say it's Blanc Otos. Um, if you win best of breed and there's only four of them, does that still count towards one of those five national wins? It does. And there was, we didn't lay out anything saying that there had to be a certain number because breeds, the numbers of breeds fluctuate um, over time. People, you know, breeds go in and out of, of fads and um, we can't penalize someone because they, they attended a convention and only a couple showed up. So, exactly. it, you know, it's going to be easier for some breeds than others, but but not really, because you go to a local show and it's going to be hard to get those fifty grand champions if you're showing Blanc de Hotos. Yeah, you got it. Um, but, you know, everything, out. everything you've laid out or everything you've you've talked about in this podcast. I mean, this program is not nearly as impossible as your eyes might seem like it is when you first look at it. This is not impossible, and for a lot of us, we might have a, ba- a master status lying in a filing cabinet, and we just don't even know it, right? Yeah, so, yeah, so, and, and it's not meant to be impossible. It's meant to be an accomplishment, but it's also not meant to be easy. In my mind, like this is something that, you know, five years um, is a, a significant amount of time. So just that alone to say, like, I've been breeding showing rabbits for five years is more than, you know, a majority of our members. There's there's a good percentage of members that don't renew after five years. So if this keeps them in for one more year, then I think we did a good job. Well, heck yeah. Or like you said with Eric, maybe getting back into a breed that that we got out of for a period of time because we were so close and didn't know about the program back then because it didn't exist. But um, I think that so much is going gonna, is gonna to come out of this, so much more inspiration. And after the year we've all just had of not seeing each other, gosh, Johnny, I haven't seen you in two years, it seems like. Um, it's going to be, we need these kind of incentives to and some positive force to uh, get us back in, at those shows and, and back doing what we all love so much. Sure. So my, my challenge to everyone, I guess, would be to just, you know, register your herd, take pride in your herd, take pride in the association that you're paying membership dues for, because, you know, this is an association that, that works for you. And if you, you lose your pedigrees, you need that security of 
uh, you know, I'm going to enter this rabbit in an online auction. No one's ever seen it before. Let me get it registered because that at least shows a little bit of weight that it, you know, it meets the requirements. It's a healthy animal. Um, and it's also a system that's been around for, oh my gosh, it was talked about in, you know, uh, 1910, so 111 years. So you're taking part in something that's that's been around for 100 plus years. So I think there's a lot of re- you know reasons to register. Um, Eric talked about us breaking that 10,000 mark of registrations this year. I think we can get close to 20,000. If, if, if we're serious about this, and I know you gave people the challenge in a previous episode to to um, send in distinguished service applications, which is Awesome. I think that's a phenomenal challenge. Um, I, I think that we could also take part in a challenge to get your herd registered. It's Heck the cost yeah. of a value meal at McDonald's. <laughs> you got it. And, you know, if we're not going to a lot of shows right now, instead of Saturday just sitting around wishing you were at a show, you could sit there and organize your organize your files. Yeah, and, you know, maybe we don't think about this anymore, but I remember early days of being a registrar. You can go to people's houses. You know, you don't have to take all your rabbits to a show to get them registered. Think of, you know, go to the website, find a local judge or registrar because all judges are registers, even if we don't want to admit it sometimes. <laughs> um, and say, listen, uh, can you come over and I have, you know, 10 rabbits, 15 rabbits to register. Um, I, I bet a lot of people would be happy to do it because for me, at least, I love talking about rabbits. I love looking at rabbits and and. Probably it's more enjoyable for me to go to someone's barn, see their setup, look at their herds, you know, talk the ins and outs uh, of their rabbits, and then at a show where I'm hurry, 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 let's get this done. Oh, I can't tell you how many homes I visited before I got my judge license as a registrar, and I learned so much. I mean, I learned all about, I'll never forget those nights at Trina Carlson's barn in San Jose looking at her English labs. I mean, that's where I learned to measure ears and and oh to document goodness. how to correctly do it. I mean, you learn so much more. Alan, if I can say one more that. thing that really irks me is when judge applicants work with me and probably other judges can attest to this too and say, oh, I haven't seen that breed or I haven't worked with that breed yet or I haven't, I haven't thought about this breed since I you know, studied for my registrar test. Like th- one of the reasons you become a registrar is to, to have hands-on experience to seek those breeders out, to, to give criticism, to read the standard and reread the standard. And if you're not doing that, if you're sitting back at home on your couch eating potato chips and not actively participating in the registration system, then, then you're not going to be as prepared as you could be when it comes time to get your judge's license. Totally true. I mean, there's so much you learn just by going to their houses and, and they tell you things that they wouldn't have told you a show because there wasn't time or they didn't think about it. And, and by the way, when you go to register at someone's house and they say, Oh yeah, I may, I have 15 or 20 by the time you leave, it's more like 30 or 35 because they're going, Oh, there's that one. There's that one. Those rabbits that never would have gone to a show to, you know, be shown suddenly, Oh, well they meet registration status and yeah, I want to get them done while you're here. So, uh, and you get three and as a registrar, you get three bucks per rabbit for doing it. So (laughs) there's a little bit of monitoring incentive. You get to make a friend. You shouldn't show up. Uh, to get your judge's license and say, I haven't worked with this breed yet. Because <laughs> that's part of your three years, is it two years or three years? You have to, two years. Two years as a registrar. Uh, yeah, it's that part of your two-year training period. And, you know, actively seek people out. Hey, you have Flemish. I haven't worked with Flemish. Can I come over? Can we go through them? Let's register a few rabbits. Um, even if you do it for $3 a rabbit. There's been times where I've done that. You know, go to someone's house, be like, can you teach me? I'll do it for $3. I won't make my three, but the ARBA will still get theirs. And it's kind of a win-win situation. 
Yeah, and what you what you learn from that, you can't put in, in, in monetary value from from those moments with that breeder no. up there in their rabbitry. Um, and as you said, a lot of people don't want to haul their rabbits to a show to get them registered. So inspiring some of those veterans that just like, oh, I don't want to like, take these rabbits out and get them registered. Um, have you come to my house and do it? You know, it's it's a win win. All right, Johnny, thank you so much for outlining this awesome master's program with the ARBA. I think it's brilliant, long overdue, and I think it's going to really inspire people, and it's going to make our industry and our association um, even stronger than it already is, and it is certainly one of the strongest animal organizations in the world. Um, Before we conclude, we ask each and every one of our guests, uh, Johnny, and I didn't send you this question, but I'm going to ask you anyway. um, If you could describe your perfect rabbit show, what would it be like? Well, that's a good question. Well, my perfect rabbit show, or I guess my favorite types of rabbit shows, are probably, uh, I love backyard picnic shows, Um, whether it's in someone's house, or we do one at a state park here um, under a pavilion, and they're so laid back, and you get to have time to talk with other breeders, to talk with the judge, to really listen, and to learn, and have things explained to you, because... um, why do we go to a show? We want our animals to be compared to the other animals in our area to see, you know, what we need to improve upon. But for a lot, a lot of people, the purpose of a show is to learn. And um, in these rush, 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 double and triple shows, you just don't get that. So my perfect rabbit show would probably be, um, and we actually have one like this, uh, at a state park um, in a pavilion with a beautiful scenic overview, a nice breeze coming in, and a place where everyone gets along, everyone's bringing some food, um, you're trading stock, you're breeding rabbits, the judge is educating, um, hopefully registering rabbits now. <laughs> but um, yeah, I don't know. I, I feel like that would, that's probably my favorite. I also love convention. You know, the bigger, the better. <laughs> West Coast Classic. But I, I really like those intimate small shows that you can go to and just hang out. I bet they remind you a lot of those first shows that got you hooked on rabbits. Yes. Yep. One of my first uh, shows was a Rex picnic in Fleetwood at a Fleetwood park. Yeah. Yep. I love it. Well, thank you for having me. I had a great time. I hope people are, you know, um, getting excited about this program, participating in the registration program. And if you have any questions at all about rabbits or registrations or anything, you can, you know, I welcome you to reach out to me. Um, email me, send me a message on Facebook, and let's chat. We are a stronger ARBA with directors like you behind us. Uh, Thank you for all your hard work. And uh, just to summarize, everyone, if you visit ARBA.net, Johnny already mentioned it, but I'm going to conclude with this. ARBA.net, click on the uh, Member Resources tab and drop down, and you can hit Master Breeder. And that summarizes all of the information that Johnny has uh, so thoughtfully and, and passionately outlined for us in this episode regarding the ARBA master's program. Johnny, thanks again. And I'll see you in Louisville. Yeah, thank you. That was a great interview with Johnny. This is such an exciting program and another way to reward our members and honor them for their dedication to improvement and continuous attempts to perfection in their respective breeds. Super cool. Thank you again, Johnny, for joining us uh, on this podcast and kind of uh, penciling out with more detail the program, which since we all haven't really been together very much, we haven't been able to talk about it in person. And now we get your perspective. So my major thanks to uh, to you for joining us on this podcast number 24 and dedicating it to the master's program. Yes, I know that um, I've received my master exhibitor certificate. I've seen other people proudly posting theirs. I mean, this is something that really means a lot to people. And and the way it was set up, 
make sure that it's not an accomplishment that can be, you know, gained quickly or without, you know, years and significant amount of work. And, and that those qualifications, I think, make it really meaningful to people. Yes, totally. And one thing that, that Johnny pointed out was that, um, you know, those wins that you had are, are good for life. So if you have legs dating back to, you know, rabbits that, that maybe you're not breeding the breed anymore. He mentioned Eric Stewart, for example, who raised Minirex. He was a top Minirex breeder for, for several years, no longer raises Minirex, but he went back and Eric looked at his legs and his grand champions. And he was like, oh my gosh, I'm so close to having master uh, breeder status. And he's actually considering raising mini Rex again, because those wins that he had nationally um, and all those grand champions that were, that were once awarded, they still count. So you can still do it again. And it's such an exciting time for us to be back in rabbits and KVs and, and with this new project. Yeah, it is. I know that some of mine, actually mine was a little difficult because I've had two different membership numbers um, with my name change. And apparently my old one was reassigned. So that caused a little bit of extra work, unfortunately. Um, but mine went all the way back to my first grand champion as a youth breeder. And now I'm thinking, you know, I really need to get rabbits out to more local shows because I want to get this master breeder certificate. I've got master exhibitor I'm really close to master breeder and I want to do this. I love it. Good luck. I mean, congratulations, first of all, on master exhibitor. That's quite the feat in itself. Well, thank you. It, it took some years. All right. So what do you have for us on the education side this episode? Um, I actually pulled out a different edition of a 2011 domestic rabbits talking about proper handling of rabbits. Um, a lot of us, you know, you and I have both been to a lot of fairs and sometimes there are some variations in the information given. Um, some of the information is a little bit older, um, but this is talking about proper handling of rabbits, how to pick them up. And the emphasis of this article is, and the pull quote is, Remember, never, never pick up a show rabbit by the scruff of the neck. That's something I've told a few exhibitors this year, as I've seen rabbits come up to the table handled by the scruff of the neck. Um, some people, you know, think, oh, this is not such a big deal. Some people are actually taught this when they're young. Some people probably have access even to materials depicting that this is the proper way to handle a rabbit. That's a very old school way to do things that was actually falling completely out of favor. By the time I got into rabbits in the early 90s, there was a lot of emphasis on telling people not to handle rabbits that way. But I've seen it kind of come back in in the past 10 years. Um, but it's never a good idea. It's not good for any breed, anytime. It's a very old way of doing things. It has gone the way of the eight track, never to return, <laughs> never to be useful again. When you grab rabbits by the scruff of the neck, it actually bruises the skin. Um, it breaks some of those blood vessels underneath the skin. It can stretch the skin out. You see rabbits that are loose around the shoulder because they've been handled by the scruff of the neck. And when you break those blood vessels, those are what feeds and nourishes that coat. So we absolutely see rabbits with break lines around the shoulder. And any judge can tell you that we see rabbits that have been handled by the scruff of the neck. We can tell that they've been handled by the scruff of the neck. And this may be why they're placing down a placement in the class because they're loose around the shoulder because their coat is broken. Um, so never, ever, 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 ever pick up a show rabbit by the scruff of the neck. Um, and this article... shows three different ways to hold the rabbit. First one is up against you, um, supporting the hindquarters with one hand and the other hand on the head and shoulders. This is a rabbit's head pointing up 
you know, towards your face. This is actually usually the the most comfortable way for me to hold my own rabbits, to hold them against me. Um, cup one hand around the hindquarters. I'll always like to feel a nice round full hindquarter when I do that. And then, you know, keep one hand on the shoulders, the ears, so they can't shoot over your shoulder. Um, the head tucked under your arm. We call it the football tuck. Like you see in showmanship, this is the recommended pose for showmanship. Rabbits sometimes will naturally go to this if they're comfortable with their owner and they're maybe a little uncomfortable with their environment. They are by nature a burrowing animal, so they are not claustrophobic like we are. They actually feel safe when they're contained because that means they're somewhere where a predator can't get to them. If they're surrounded on all sides, they're safe. So this is the preferred um, way of caring for showmanship. It's also often easier for younger exhibitors because you've got your whole arm to support the rabbit as, you know, instead of maybe your hands, which might be a little small, especially if you've got a larger rabbit. And the third method is turned upside down with um, the back support on your forearm, holding the head with your hand. Again, sometimes this involves gripping the ears or maybe the shoulders on a breed that has short ears. This is another method of carrying a rabbit that is very helpful, especially if they're a little bit agitated. Flipping them over and kind of holding them this way kind of calms them down a bit sometimes. Um, Sometimes that's an easier way to put a rabbit back in a cage. I know some of the coops we use at convention have those little small doors on them. And sometimes if the rabbits are a little upset, the best way to get them out and then put them back in is to flip them over on their back and kind of pull them out this way. Um, So they're not, you know, kind of extending their front legs or kicking with their back legs and fighting to stay in that coop. Well, Um, it's funny that that you mentioned that method. I actually did not know that that was something that people did, but we all, a lot of us do it. And I stopped myself in my tracks one day. I think I was training somebody, I don't know, somebody maybe was over in my rabbitry and, uh, and they asked like, why do you hold them upside down? Like uh, not upside down guys, but like on their backs as if I'm going to like check, you know, the underside of the rabbit in a showmanship routine, you know, check their teeth, you know, check their nails, check their sex. And I'm like, I don't know why I do that. And then I realized I do that every day. And as you said, it's, you know, rabbits that are a little more agitated, it's a very secure way and safe way of holding them without them, you know, scratching you or, you know, getting away from you. So, but it's not, I mean, it's not a recommended way for a showmanship routine. Wouldn't you agree? Yes. Yes, absolutely. The football tuck is, is the, the gold standard method for showmanship. And that's probably, I would say the best method for someone who's just learning to handle rabbits safely. Definitely. Um, Once you get a little more comfortable with your animals, with your breed, kind of how they behave when you handle them, um, then you can use some of these other methods. Like I said, the one that's most comfortable to me most of the time is just to hold them up on my chest. Um, But I do have a couple that like to, you know, if I'm wearing a necklace, they want to nibble or something like that. Um, So I'll flip them over. Um, Sometimes you get those does that are a little bit crabby when you want to check their babies. So you flip them over and pull them out of the cage and, you know, let them go sit somewhere else while you're looking at their babies. Um, so yeah, all of these things are probably good to practice at home, but that football carry is, is the gold standard for showmanship. Well, and as you said, rabbits in the wild live in burrows, they're a prey animal. So they're most comfortable when they actually can't see their surroundings. So tucking them under your, under your arm or your shoulder as you're, as you're carrying them in that football method is the most comfortable for them because they feel the safest. Yeah, yeah. I, we actually talked about this. I did a state fair this weekend and there was a rabbit that was pretty wound up. Um, it was, you know, there was a lot going on in the surroundings and it just shot into my elbow. And, you know, the people kind of, oh my, and I said, this is where it feels safe. Um, 
they they feel safe in a burr. They feel safe in, you know, a small carrier when they're traveling um, because that to them is protection. Humans don't like that. Um, I don't know what the evolutionary basis for that is, but most humans don't really like being in a small confined space. Um, but when you're something, you're, you're a creature that's vulnerable from the top, that's comforting to you. Definitely. So I also want to talk a little bit about um, turning rabbits over. And this isn't, it's, it's touched on in the article, but, um, you know, we judge a lot of showmanship. And this is something that I see a lot of kids do. This is actually something I used to do when I was younger. And I remember Glenn Carr training me out of this when I was working for my judge's license. Um, turning rabbits over by putting a finger between the ears, it's easier when your hands are smaller. Um, and it gives you maybe a little more comfortable grip. But when you roll that rabbit over, you're kind of twisting that ear base and you're more likely to be scratched or kicked. Um, I worked on this after he pointed that out to me and I know it improved my handling of rabbits. I didn't get scratched so much. Now I put the ears between my thumb and kind of the side of my hand under my index finger. And it takes a while to get used to that. It really does. Um, but once you start doing that, it's more comfortable to the animal because you're not twisting that ear base. And you always want to make sure, too, when you're turning those rabbits over, you don't want to lift by the ears. The ears are just for control. You want to push the rear end and kind of ball them up and roll them up like a roly-poly and roll them over, maintaining control with the ears, but really pushing or even lifting off the table with that hand that's on the hindquarters. Great advice. And I think that, I mean, I call it like a, like a scissoring method with the ears, as you just described with what, with how Glenn taught you. And I tell kids during showmanship, usually the first timers and I'll kind of stop them in their tracks. Like they're, they're probably not going to do very well the rest of the time, but I take it like, Hey, this is a learning lesson for you. I hope you come back next year, but do this and then pretend like, because the rabbit's like flailing out of their, out of their arms, like three or four times or longer. And I said, pretend like that rabbit, if you don't grab it this way, it's going to fall off a skyscraper and you're never going to have it again. And they're like, Oh, and it's usually like little kids and like, Oh, I would want that to happen. So they, they do that method and then well, they turn them over and they don't get loose the next time. Yeah. Yeah. Um, checking the teeth is another one. You know, sometimes you see beginners kind of come from the front to check those teeth and push the lips back. Um, but that gives a rabbit the opportunity to nip so we always recommend that you come over the top of the head and pull the lips back from behind. And if you watch judges judge, this is how we do it. There's really not a way that they can bite you when you're coming and pulling those lips from behind. Um, and, you, and you get a better view too. You know, I always tell the kids, um, if you're if you're in front of me and I'm judging you, if I can't see what you're doing, how can I see that the rabbit you say doesn't have malocclusion doesn't have malocclusion? So if you come in from over the top, you really get a full mouth's view, and then you can easily kind of manipulate that that view towards the judge so they can see that you're doing it correctly and that you, you are saying, okay, my rabbit, I'm checking for malocclusion and my rabbit doesn't have it. You know, that's, that's important. I want to be able to see that what you're saying is. In yes, that's a great point. Um, during showmanship, you know, you get kids that will kind of lean over the rabbit and, and they'll tell you that they're doing everything. But that's one of the big things that, that you need to do is to actually give the judge a visual of what you're looking for. Um, I guess if I were to explain rabbit showmanship to someone that was a total newbie, I would say that you should get a really good demonstration of how a judge examines a rabbit and what the judge is looking for in that particular breed. Um, and you, you want to see that hands-on and you want to see that, you know, the judge wants to be able to look at and get a good visual in everything you're doing. Same way with, you know, exposing all of the toenails and making sure that they're present and they're the right color. Um, when you check the sex, 
Um, I like how some of our leaders here talk about pretend that your fingers are scissors and you're cutting the tail off close to the base and then push on a little triangle above the tail to check the rabbit's sex. Um, and if you're good at handling, and, and it comes from practice, everyone has to practice. No one's really born doing this well. You can kind of just maintain control of those ears and then just rotate and move the rabbit on its back end as you go through this routine. So you can, you know, have the teeth close to the judge. Then you can angle it a different way so the toenails are easy to be seen. And then rotate it again further so you can show the judge the rabbit's sex, that you're checking the hocks and rear toenails and things like that. I, I love that. And one of the things that kids will often say when they're new, like, how do I remember to do all this stuff? I just tell them, start at the top of the rabbit and go down, whether the rabbit is, is turned, you know, in its seated position, in a posed position, or whether it's, you know, on its back and you're checking underneath. Start from the top. And because, as you said, it's like a thorough evaluation as a judge would go through if they were judging the rabbit. If you go through everything, you're not going to forget something. Like, because literally, if in that showmanship rubric, that that outline, it's everything that you check and it's there isn't a, a fur that isn't touched and and turned over uh in that evaluation so if you're worried about forgetting something just start at the top yeah yeah absolutely and you know if you're maybe uncertain about handling or you want some hands-on tips um i would suggest the next show you go to watch the judges um you know we, we we're not magicians we can't get every rabbit to cooperate with us on the very first try but we're really experienced at this um and you'll see that we've learned handling techniques that minimize distress to the animals minimize the chance of getting scratched or bitten for us um and asked us about us afterwards and as we've learned there is a handedness to judging rabbits um both you and i right right-handed but we judge rabbits left-handed um so i would also suggest that maybe you kind of work with rabbits and figure out um which is the most comfortable for you. Um, I think the dominant hand is the one that you're doing the checking with. You know, when I roll rabbits over, I hold the ears in my right and check toenails and such with my left. Um, so maybe give that a try. And maybe even practice handling rabbits with both hands so they're most comfortable with anyone who's handling them. And if you could become ambidextrous and can pose rabbits from both directions, maybe you're very talented. You probably can do this. Please come and train me because I still can't pose rabbits right-handed. I, I, I pose everything left-handed and I, I don't do anything else left-handed. But for whatever reason, back when I learned, that's the way I started and that's the way I do it to this day. Same. I am <laughs> the same. I pose rabbits left-handed. I'm pathetic at doing it right-handed. I've tried. If I get one that absolutely will not pose left-handed, I can usually kind of turn it forward where its head's facing me and I can set it up that way and it's okay with it and I'm okay and, you know, everything's right in the world. Um, but I'm not comfortable with it. I pose rabbits left-handed and I drive left-handed. That's about the only thing I do with Whoa, my left I hand. I never thought about that, but I drive with my left. Okay. I do two things now with my left hand. I didn't know. I definitely drive with my left hand. It's crazy. Yep. Yep, always. And I, my, my husband's left-handed. He's like, oh, I drive with my left hand. Of course I do. Um, so apparently that's a thing too. But yeah, I, I am left-eye dominant. So that's always been interesting. Um, like when I shoot anything, I shoot with my right hand, but I side out of my left eye. So I don't know if that has much to do with it. But there's a few of us that are like, like that with rabbits. We don't handle rabbits with our writing hand. That would be an interesting experiment. All right, I've got one more question for you while we're on this because this is this is something that rabbit judges you debate. Okay, when you judge petites, Britannia petites, do you pose with your right or left hand? 
Right. That's the only breed okay. I judge right-handed. There you go. Okay. Yep. So weird. <laughs> yep. My right hand is on the shoulders. My left hand is either lying stupidly at my side or yeah. kind of up in front of the face. Or, or if I'm doing it, I'm, I'm snapping my fingers in front of their face, trying to get them more alert. Yeah. With, with yeah. the left hand. Yeah, exactly. I can't really... Yeah. Yeah, I can snap with my left hand. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> it's the only hand I can snap with, actually. All right. I do three things left-handed, <laughs> as we're discovering in this podcast. <laughs> All right. I digress. Well, as always, we end each episode with a quote. And for this one, this is a quote from Thomas Mann. Order and simplification are the first steps towards mastery of a subject. And we've said it time and time again, focus. You know, it's there are 50 breeds and they're all really interesting, but you don't have to have 50 at once. Start with something simple, something just single. Put your focus towards that. All right, everyone. Thanks for listening to podcast episode 24 of Best in Show. We appreciate each and every one of you who tune in every week to this podcast. And we have many, many more to come. And we're going to end, as we always do, by saying talk rabbits and talk havies. See you next time. While this podcast would not be possible without the American Rabbit Breeders Association, it does not constitute an official communication of the association. The information, viewpoints, and opinions expressed herein are those of the hosts and our guests and are not endorsed by the ARBA. To learn more about the ARBA, please visit www.arba.net.